Hello, everyone. This week, Standard Deviations is coming to you live from sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, where I'm at the Orion Ascent Conference. This week at Ascent, we'll be rolling out our new 3D risk tolerance questionnaire. We'll be introducing our goals-based investing platform, talking about some exciting practice management offerings we have, uh, and introducing all the ways in which behavioral finance is being integrated into everything we do at Orion. If you want to learn more about this and get a free download of a one-pager on how to have better conversations with your clients, go to orion.com slash BFI. That's orion.com slash B-E-F-I. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, I am joined by Dr. Sarah Newcomb, a behavioral economist at Morningstar. Uh, Dr. Sarah is an expert in consumer psychology, economic decision-making, and personal money management. She's the author of a fantastic book called Loaded, uh, which I would encourage everyone to check out. And Loaded will uh, also serve as the uh, sort of jumping off point for our conversation today. So Dr. Sarah, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And you're joining us from Maine. I am in the middle of the woods in Maine. Yeah, you have, uh, right before we hit record, you actually talked me into moving there. I actually have been looking to move to the middle of the woods for the last 18 months. I'm thoroughly convinced. Look forward to being your neighbor. Nice. So, too. <laughs> so uh, I absolutely loved your book. When, when preparing uh, my notes for, for our conversation today, it was very easy because I had sort of marked up and, and annotated your book. So I'll use some of my favorite annotations and my favorite markings from that book as a, as a jumping off point today. Uh, one of the first quotes from the book that I wanted to get some more color from you on is as follows. You say, nearly every money message we encounter has within it some tone of good or evil and taking stock of which messages we have come to believe and the moral tenor they imply can bring us a long way toward understanding why we behave the way that we do with our own money. So this is uh, fascinating, and I think right on the money, no pun intended. Uh, why is it that money takes on such a moralistic tenor, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I think there are so many reasons why money takes on a moralistic tenor. Um, I would say let's let's think about what money is first right just as a logistical thing money represents value it's it is a resource it's a store of value and so how you use your money how much money you have this this basically tells us or tells you you know how what resources do you have available to you and how you choose to use your resources that has an effect on the world around it there's no way that that doesn't um, start to then, you know, uh, into, it leads to a sense of, well, what's fair, right? And we all have different, there are, there are different schools of thought around resource management, what's fair and what's fair or what's right or what's wrong. And right and wrong easily lead us down to good and evil. I mean, this is, it, we have millennia of of cultural and spiritual stories and archetypes and messages that we've all been uh, exposed to 
they vary, but we've all been exposed to many loaded messages about money. And so many of them have this, this good or evil um, flavor to them. And so, I mean, on, a, on maybe the, the lightest level, you could say, well, it's not really good and evil. It's just positive or negative. Right. But, um, but we tend, we want to make everything binary. Our brains just do that, right? We want to simplify everything. And so we kind of classify money into this, well, is money good or is it bad? And that will, our belief about that is going to be highly dependent on the messages we've been exposed to. And then of the messages that we've been exposed to, which did we internalize and how did we form our core beliefs about the world and money's role in it? So let me give you an example of what I mean by a cultural or spiritual story um, that's informing these core beliefs, moral belief. Very, very famous misquote of the Bible. Money is the root of all evil, right? Misquote, but very common. And let's just unpack that for a second, right? So the, the sort of vernacular, the, the popular saying is money is the root of all evil. What does that, let's just think about that for a second. That is basically blaming money or the economic systems that we have set up for ourselves for all the damage that we see in the world. And when you, if you've heard that message in any flavor, even if you've heard the real the real scripture, which is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Either one, you can say, okay, well, money's connected to evil and money is a source of evil somehow. Then you look around at the world and what do you see? You see inequality, you see exploitation, you see all sorts of injustice. And it's easy to say, yes, Money is the root of all evil. Money causes all these things. But we have to be careful about these snap judgments and turning it into this wrong rule of thumb that we blame money. We blame an inanimate object for the choices that humans have made. Humans built those systems. Money didn't build the, that system. Humans are the ones that exploit. Money doesn't do that. And we have this, this um, personification almost of money. There's a very common belief that money corrupts people. If you've been exposed like I was growing up to these moralistic, the negative moralistic um translations of money, that money is, um, that money is, you know, makes people greedy, that money corrupts people. Um, you hear it all around you. So when you start to listen for it, when you start to listen to the things that people say about money or about people who have money or about people who don't have money, any, any saying, any observation about that involves money, if you think about it, you'll be able to find a, a, moral judgment in there usually. And I think we have to be really careful to tease out our moral judgments from money because it sends us on this um, path toward knee-jerk reactions that um, we behave with our money in ways that maybe we wouldn't if we didn't hold those beliefs. So, you know, this is a this is a podcast that is listened to by people all over the world. We are the 116th most popular podcast in Finland. I'll have you know, but um, but you and I are you and I are both in America, and you know, America was to a large extent um, founded by religious separatists and people with um, strong religious convictions. 
is is this moralizing around money uh, a, a uniquely American problem, or is this something that happens all over the world? Um, yeah. Well, so okay, I can. I'm anything I say in this is going to be largely um, U.S. centric and um, and more Christian centric, just because that's the culture that I grew up in. However, lots of research does show common themes. So let's just talk about the the cultural norms that go along, you know, spiritual traditions breed cultural norms. And so if you have a spiritual tradition that demonizes wealth and glorifies poverty, those are extreme interpretations of this moralistic view of money, right? And we know that extremes lead us down the wrong road. And yet we're so drawn to them, aren't we? We, because they're clean and they're easy. Um, And so our brains love them and we just have to be really careful not to, not to, to go there. But to your question about, is this uh, an American thing or, or is it more universal? It's more universal. So you, 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 many spiritual traditions and cultural traditions can slip into this tendency to glorify poverty as if poverty itself were a an enlightened spiritual state or you know a a very you know straightforward path to enlightenment and so it's not the the scripture that comes to my mind the most on this topic is actually not the one that's in my book. It's not the money is the root of all evil one. It's, it's from Matthew. It says um, you cannot serve two masters. And, and it ends up by saying you cannot serve both God and money. And that message is in it's framed differently in different spiritual and cultural traditions. But I think it encapsulates, it encapsulates very well this message that a lot of us grow up with hearing, hearing or seeing um, demonstrated to us in some way, which is you either care about people or you care about money, choose sides. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons I think why we see culturally service jobs don't pay as much. It's sort of assumed that if you care about people, you don't care as much about money. Mm -hmm. Right. And we, it, these things, these, I think it's, it's, it's a chicken and egg situation. The unconscious sort of biases that we have about wealth and poverty and what it means to have money and not have money, those things then shape the systems that we build, our economic and social systems. And then those systems reinforce the stereotypes that the systems were built upon. Mm-hmm. And so we end up um, in situations where um, we are just playing out the same story over and over again. And we, I mean, there's so much research that shows things like, you know, I know we'll we'll probably get into this because it's a big part of my book, but that, um, you know, we have stereotypes that are generally positive about wealthy people. And we have stereotypes that are generally negative about poor people. And this cuts across income classes. Poor people are also biased against poor people. And so it's it's really, it's something that I love what Jung said. He said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. 
And I think that is so brilliant because what we do, if we are not mindful and aware and conscious of the way that our thinking affects the way we build our lives and then in our, in our, in our individual lives and then in our collective lives and our societies, if we ignore these things, then we will build systems based on these unconscious biases and they will just perpetuate the unconscious biases. And we see that all around us now. I think we're having a very awakening moment as a world during COVID, um, which is very welcome to me. But um, I think what so much of money management and is really about is about learning to have a healthy relationship with money itself learning to examine the way you think and feel about money and to question the way you think and feel about money. Yeah. So I love that, uh, that quote from Carl Jung as well. I use it all the time as well. And I've, I, I think about it myself, right. In, in my own relationships and in my own striving for, for self-development, I attended uh, a university that's, that's, you know, attached to a conservative Christian religious tradition and one of my friends, uh, for his dissertation, uh, did a uh, an examination of beliefs about people within the faith about those by income level. And what he found is there was a level of sort of righteousness or or piety that was ascribed to people with with more money. And I thought that was a, a, a fascinating finding that we really do make sort of moralistic and even religious assumptions about people based on their level of wealth. What I'm hearing you say, though, is that that we need a couple of things. And you tell me if I'm off here. We need, first of all, cognizance of our our, our own money stories, right? We need an awareness of our of our own money stories. And then we we almost need to become a little bit dispassionate and view money as a tool, not as a force of good or evil. It, it, do I have that right? Or do you want to speak about it a little bit. Yeah. 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 I think, I think you're, you're definitely on it. So the, yes, we need to be, we need to be as mindful about our financial thinking as we are about other areas of our lives, but this is sort of an untouchable area for most of us. We don't learn to communicate it about it with each other or with ourselves. And so we're left to just figure it out on our own. And um, and that doesn't always turn out perfectly. We have to learn by making mistakes that way. So I think you know it's about it's about observation, um, brave observation, and then it's about bringing your critical thinking skills to to the forefront and saying, are these beliefs that I have formed around money? There, I think that the big thing is we take our beliefs about money, and if we haven't questioned them. And we kind of think, oh, this is just the truth with a capital T, right? We forget that it's a perspective, that your view of money and the economy and the world and what it means is, is really, really limited because of your perspective and your experiences growing up. And yet you probably think it applies to everyone everywhere and is just true with a capital T. And we've got to say, wow, my views on money are really, they came through a filter just like everything else. Let me examine them now as an adult and say, okay, I've inherited a lot. I've inherited a lot of ways of thinking in a lot of different areas of my life. Money is one of them. So let me now examine the deep 
core values that I've formed around money. And let me ask myself, are they serving me or not? How are they serving the people that gave them to me, who, who instilled them in me? You know, a lot of times we, we have in, we internalize messages that don't even work for the people who taught them to us. And yet we carry them on generation after generation. I think we have to get free of the blindness of just doing what we think is acceptable because it's that's our culture. And money, financial values are very cultural. Now, back to your question about religion. I think the other thing about this is I don't want to paint religion as some like terrible force in in the world because it gets people to hate money. I that's that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that our cultural stories whether they come from a spiritual tradition or they come from the stories that we love, um they can come from fairy tales, they can come from watching um people's lives, they can come from television, whatever the stories are that we are looking at that that we take in, what does it mean to do life right? What does it mean to like, what kind of person do I want to be? As we're making those choices and putting together this narrative in our head and ordering everything in our minds, we are, we are infusing a lot of deep core values. And I just think we need to stop, take a breath and say, let me be mindful about those values. Let me see how they're affecting me now. And let me see how, how I would like to possibly change some of them if they happen to be getting in my way. Yeah. One of my, um, one of my favorite questions as when I was a therapist was, you know, how is that working for you? You know, someone would, you know, talk about this narrative, their, their thought process, their process of behavior, and just ask, you know, very with, with legitimate curiosity, how is that working for you? So I think people can examine their, their money scripts, their money values, and say, you know, is this is this serving me well, or is it is it serving me poorly? And, you know, to your point, I think my awareness of my my money story grew and changed when I got married and started, you know, sh- sharing a checkbook with someone. You go, oh, I mean, even two people from ostensibly similar backgrounds, you know, uh, socioeconomically and, and otherwise, still have slightly different money stories. And I, you know, I still have not convince my wife that sneakers and baseball cards are an asset class that she needs to invest in, but I'm working on it. So you should talk, you should talk to my partner. He's got some Nikes. <laughs> I'm wearing, I'm wearing Jordans as we speak, my friend. So <laughs> in your book, I, I, I love something you said on Twitter this morning. I, ho- I hope you'll share it here because in your book, you mentioned that lack of money is linked to depression relationship problems, lower performance on difficult tasks, and and shorter life expectancy. Conversely, wealth, like having money, is linked to reduced compassion, victim blaming, and being less likely to ask for help. So, you know, yikes. What's the... (laughs) I know. Like having no money, you know, a, a dearth of money is problematic. A great deal of money can can be equally problematic. How do you go about navigating this middle path and 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 trying to figure out what enough looks like? Yeah, it it's I think this is a big challenge. And first, let me just say 
let's be careful not to take the findings from these studies and make, you know, blanket statements that, you know, not having money means you live a miserable life and having money means that you're a, a antisocial, a non-compassionate person. So again, we've got to be careful of the way that our minds want to simplify these things. But there have been repeated studies over and over in many areas of, um, of life, uh, people's lives that have shown, first of all, to the poverty is, is not fun uh, fact um, I've lived this, uh, being poor is exhausting. It is exhausting. It is a constant, constant battle against chaos and uncertainty and the cost of being poor, we pay for it with our health. And so what a lot of these studies boil down to is that the lack of solvency, the lack of financial stability contributes to poor health because chronic stress is a silent killer. And the number one source of stress, it's been studied over and over and over again. The number one source of stress for Americans anyway, is money. And guess what? It's usually money over their health. Hmm. And so again, we have this negative feedback loop where not having resources leads to chronic stress, which leads to health problems, but you can't go to the doctor because it costs too much. So then your health deteriorates more. So then you can't work. So then you don't have money. So then you're losing more sleep at night. So then you get sicker. So then you're more stressed and it gets, it's a poverty trap. And so it, this is why I think glorifying poverty is not the answer. You know, yeah. you can say, look, I don't want to be greedy. Great. Ignoring money completely is not the, the solution to that. Learning to have a healthy relationship with money, learning how to use it and not abuse it, learning how to not fall in love with it, not make it your master, but you master it. That's the way to handle money. So many people, like I did when I was younger, what we do is we say, well, money is, is just, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's, I don't, I don't like what I see it doing in the world. I don't want anything to do with it. And so we sort of glorify this idea of not caring about money, but if you don't care about money and you don't focus on it, it will rule your life because you will constantly be, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that you have to eat. You have to clothe yourself. You, there is with very few exceptions on this planet, a human being who does not have to think about and manage money every single day of their life. And so it may be nice to imagine just cutting off from everything and saying, well, I'm not going to care about it. But if you decide not to care about it and not to focus on it, it doesn't go away. It will just go unmanaged. There's also, so there's, there's the apathy that can, or avoidance, money avoidance that can lead to financial problems. And then it starts that stress and health negative feedback loop cycle. There's also just simply insolvency. Many people do not earn a living wage. Many people, it's not that they're, that they don't know what to do with their money. They simply can't. And so then that's, that's a problem that that's a big societal problem. And big societal problems have to be solved on a big societal poverty level or, or policy level, right? Big societal problems need big societal solutions. So we can't solve that with psychology except with group psychology and hoping that we can, um, we can find more uh, productive ways for, to do resource management as a society. But there's also the 
internal conditions. And so to the extent that we can make better decisions with our money so that we can avoid these poverty traps and negative feedback loops, let's do that because it's going to take a while for us to fix the societal problems. In the meantime, let's do as well as we can individually in the moment. So my my caution to people about glorifying poverty is that poverty kills And so if you decide that you're not going to care about money, you are walking down a very dangerous psychological and health path. And so I I think it's, again, it's, it's about not going to extremes and saying, look, how can I manage money? How can I think about money as a resource to be managed? It is not the end goal of my life. It supports the end goals of my life. How do I make it work for me as a resource? And that can help take some of that moralizing and judgment out of the equation. Um, But if you still, like I did for a very long time, have deeply internalized negative associations with money as like, you know, if you if you focus on money, you must be greedy. You must have a bad heart. I mean, those were the messages I grew up with. And they were well-meaning, but they poisoned my my mind and behavior. And so I had to really, like, financial therapy is a thing for a reason. And a lot of people could really use some good talks about this stuff. So I would say if you're if you're a money avoider or if you know a money avoider, the problem is that poverty kills. On the other side, the the connections that we've seen about, you know, the lack of compassion and stuff. Let me unpack that a little bit. So there's a whole bunch of studies that, and I should say most of these are laboratory studies. They're very clever. A lot of them are very carefully set up. And so there are some general takeaways that we can take from them to say, okay, there's a correlation here, but correlation is not causation. So we have to remember, it's not that having money causes these things. It's that there have been correlations observed between privilege and having plenty and being more advantaged than others and antisocial behavior, lack of compassion and altruism. So let me give you an example. Um, My favorite example of this is the Monopoly study that Paul Piff did, the University of Berkeley. And he what he did was he he put people in a situation, college students, they just had to play a game of Monopoly against each other. But one person was randomly chosen to get twice as much money at the outset, twice as much money every time around, and they got to roll two dice. So they're clearly at an advantage. And in the beginning, they would comment on the fact that this wasn't fair and they totally had the advantage. And so then they watched these people play the game. And the people who were given the privilege at the outset, even though they knew they were given the privilege, they would talk louder. They would eat more snacks. They would get all they were just they they started to just have that that, you know, kind of. I'm the man energy, right? Whether they were male or female. And and they were behaving in an entitled, in a more entitled way, while the people who were put at a disadvantage would shrink back. They got smaller. They were not as engaged. And it was clearly an unpleasant situation for them. 
at the end of the study, then when they debriefed the people, the people who even at the beginning had said they had they clearly had a, an unfair advantage, at the end, when they were asked why they won, not one of them mentioned that they were given twice as much money to start out with, twice as much money every time around, and not one of them. They all talked about the decisions that they made and how they and their skill and their decisions got them, you know, helped them win the game. And I think it's just what I would not take away from this, that money makes us entitled, that money makes us less compassionate. I think what this does is it illustrates the fact that privilege is blind. The way we cope with privilege is by pretending it doesn't exist. What I mean by that is that when we we all we tend to want to believe in a just world. There's a whole theory in psychology, the just world theory. It's fascinating. But to some extent or another, most of us at least want to believe that there is some order and justice to the world around us. And so when there is evidence that that is not true and that we are, in fact, the recipients, the the beneficiaries of injustice, that is psychologically painful Mm -hmm. because we have empathy and we don't want to be the cause of anybody else's suffering. It's kind of like um, not that we're the cause of their suffering, but we don't like to see other people suffer when we know that they deserve good just as much as we do. It's psychologically painful to reconcile that, that you are the beneficiary of an unjust situation. And so to deal with that psychological pain, we have a few options. We can either say, I deserved it. I made all decisions right. I I deserve it. Somehow, somehow I deserve it. And you see caste systems and lots of different system justification, lots of ways. These are not personal failures. These aren't character flaws. They're defense mechanisms against the psychological pain of knowing that you got the benefit of an unjust system. And so I think we have to stop blaming ourselves, too, for all of our, you know, we all have kind of messed up relationships with money. And let's just let's just get all the moralizing, including toward ourselves, off the table. Let's just say, okay, we're all kind of mixed up about this. Let's just do our best to straighten it out. So I think that the the lack of compassion thing, the the lack of altruism, I mean, another study that was really interesting was um, people, they had people of all sorts of different income groups come into the lab and they gave them, and this is like income groups up to like 200,000 plus, right? And they gave them $10 and they were able to either keep it or give it away. And they found that the people who had more money were less likely to give it away, which I was really surprised by because what is $10 to you? Uh, you know, when you have, when you have a lot, Um, but the people who had less tended to be more altruistic. Um, And so these, these are interesting studies. They, they, I think what they do, I don't want the takeaway to be, you know, that being rich makes you bad. That's not, that's not the, the takeaway. The takeaway is that human beings are complex psychological creatures and we have these biases and one of our biases is to want to feel like good people. And to another one is that we want to believe that the world is just. And so we will create realities around ourselves and narratives around ourselves so that that so that those things seem to be true. 
So uh, I would be remiss here if I didn't talk about my favorite study on the relationship between compassion and, and wealth. They looked at, I hope I'm, I'm, hope I'm recounting this correctly. They looked, they had someone wait at a pedestrian crosswalk, uh, you know, as they're about to cross and they, they monitored the cars that came by and, and, you know, decided, did the car break and allow the pedestrian to cross or did the, did the car blow through the crosswalk? And the finding was that effectively, the nicer the car, the less likely to to stop for the pedestrian. <laughs> so I know that one too. And as a BMW driver, I have a different view on why BMW drivers are such jerks on the roads now. <laughs> and it's because the car is so much fun to drive. You just don't want to slow down. But uh, it has nothing to do with being a jerk to other people. You just want the car to run. But but again, like I, I think the other thing that I want to say about these studies is that like, Again, correlation is not causation. There are there are many other things that could explain some of the things that we're seeing in these studies. And so, for example, the um, there are lots of correlation studies that show that like the more money you have, the more uh, of a stronger internal locus of control that you have. You feel more in control of your life, right? And so you could say, well, people who feel more in control of their life make more money. Well, maybe, or maybe when you have more money it's easy. You have more control over your life because you do, you know? Um, so, so I think we, we've got to just always be skeptical and not, not turn the study of financial psychology into a way of moralizing against rich and poor, because we demonize the thing is we demonize the rich, we demonize the poor. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've just got to stop it and start saying, let's, let's just focus on a healthier relationship with money. What does it mean to think about money in in a sound and wise way? What does wise money management look like? And how do you, when you start to recognize these emotionally and morally twinged beliefs, how do you start to reprogram them? So growing up, it was easy to be humble and sort of circumspect about money because we were broke, right? Like that's how I, that's how I learned to be, to be prudent with money is because, you know, when I was young, we did, we didn't have any. I would imagine that the average standard deviations listener skews on on average to, to above average income. If we find ourselves in the, in this place of, of, of abundance is it just about recognizing privilege? Like, is that the is that the primary mechanism? Is it about recognizing luck and privilege and injustice that has gone our way? Is that the the primary thing that keeps us from being the monopoly winner who's gloating when they had a stacked deck, or the the BMW driver who blows through the intersection? I mean, what's sort of the mechanism by which we can get the best out of money without falling prey to sort of the uh, the the lack of compassion that can attend it sometimes. Uh, it's a great question. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about what I what I think, and I'm speaking my own theory here. But what I think, based on the research I've read, is really going on when we look at the sort of different worldviews, the different attitudes and behaviors of the rich and the poor. There have been some carefully done studies that look at the difference between having an interdependent worldview or an independent worldview. And we think 
about the U.S. as being a very independent society. We love independence in the U.S. We we reward independence and entrepreneurship and the the person who stands out and and makes a splash, right? And one way to to differentiate between an independent culture and an interdependent culture is that in an independent culture, the one who stands out gets applauded. In an interdependent culture, the one of the sayings is the nail that sticks out gets hammered. And so it's a really different view about whether being, you know, independent and the the individual is important or the collective is important. And so whichever, whichever culture you grew up in likely really shaped your moral views about what people should and shouldn't do around money. So it's not so much rich and poor, but there is a very, what some studies have shown is like taking America as one example and Russia as another example. On the whole, America would be, um, at the time the study was done, categorized as um, an independence-oriented culture and Russia as an interdependence-oriented culture. But in both countries, if you look at the people with lower incomes, they tended to have an interdependent view of the world and life. And the higher income people had an independent view of the world and life. And so I think that what this this divide between the rich and poor, the way that we demonize each other and separate ourselves from each other has more to do with social psychology than it does with, um, with money itself. I think it has to do with whether, think about it this way. If you grow up with lack, you grow up with insecurity all around you, you need the people around you more. The community has to come together to support one another in order to survive. And so an interdependent culture is going to be an adaptive reaction to a situation of lack. And so it makes sense that in the lower income communities, it is more common to find an interdependent mindset. And in an interdependent mindset, you value relationships as currency that's far more valuable than you do finances because money comes and goes, but your relationships are what really sustain you. In an independent culture, on the other hand, what is really valued is the ability to provide for oneself without help. And so the, and it's achievement oriented, the way you get belonging and your deep human need for just having a tribe in an independent culture is to provide for yourself, to not need anyone else. And it's very much more about the individual being able to sustain themselves on their own. And so where it it's about values and it turns into a culture, but then within the culture, the way you make friends, the way you become, the way you get acceptance is by either having that interdependent mindset or having the independent mindset. And so you can start to see why people with an independent mindset might look at someone with an interdependent mindset and be like, why are you chatting to your friend instead of working? Well, because relationships are more important in my life than money is because my relationships sustain me more than money does. 
And it's a, there's a, you can see why then on the other side, the people who are in the interdependent mindset, look at people who are independent and say, why don't you care about anyone else? Why is it all about you? Well, because if I can't provide for myself, I don't belong. I don't, I don't have, I don't get my tribe. It's about human belonging in the end. And so I think, I think that it comes down to uh, social psychology more than, more than actually the independence leads to certain behaviors. A belief in interdependence leads to other behaviors. And then we judge the other group's behaviors because that's what we do with a group that's different from us. So at, at Orion, we have we haven't rolled this out yet. Uh, probably will soon after this this airs. We did research into what um, what effectively what do, what do people fight about when they fight about money, right? And we we tried to sort of measure these these scripts and give advisors tools for having conversations with folks about these money scripts. And we found sort of five salient areas of difference. And one of the five salient areas of difference uh, among couples was this individualistic versus collectivistic orientation around money. It's like, okay, if I'm a if I'm a first generation immigrant, am I sending money home to my family in the Philippines, uh, or do you have to put your own you know sort of oxygen mask on first before you can help someone else? There's there's a case to be made for both, but again, you know, we have to understand culturally from a social psychological perspective where we come from and we have to you know have that conversation with our partner i think it's i think it's a fascinating uh, a fascinating look at money within the context of culture so we could talk about that all day i want to go on to something that kind of blew my mind when i read it i had never articulated it as concisely as as you did in the book you write in, in Loaded that, that our minds don't distinguish between me and mine. So in a very real sense, when we're talking about retail therapy and even addiction, right? Like even where some people get addicted to, to buying things, I'm a big fan of, of existentialism and existentialism has this idea of thrownness, basically, right? Like we're, we didn't ask to be born, like we're, we're thrown into this world and we're tasked with creating a self, creating an identity effectively from scratch. And, and so we take shortcuts, you know, we, we brand ourselves and we say, oh, well, I'm a BMW driver or I'm a guy who wears Jordans. And, you know, we, we ass assign certain tendencies to ourselves because you say we don't differentiate between the things I own and who I am. Can you talk a bit about, about that? Yeah, this phenomenon is called the possession self-link. So if you're interested in it and you want to learn more about it, uh, just Google that, the possession self-link. Basically, there's a, a body of work um, going back decades that shows that when we have control over something, we sort of um, incorporate it into our sense of self. So like, imagine you're sitting at a restaurant and you're drinking the water from the glass in front of you. For that time, it is your glass. If somebody were to just come up and take it away, you would feel affronted. <laughs> and because for during the time that you have control over that glass and it's in your realm of it belongs to you, it is almost a part of you. This is one of the reasons why when people have, especially when uh, objects that are very, that represent to you 
things that are very identity salient, that are very close to the things that you really care about who you are. Let's say you, you love exercise, you love, you love biking and someone steals your bike. Yeah. It's not just the, the bike that you grieve. You go through a grieving process because that hurts. They took a part of you. And we, people who, uh, who have homes destroyed or lose, lose property, they go through a real grieving process because a part of themselves is lost. And this, this tendency of our minds to take not just our bodies and our personalities, but also the things we own, the people that we're close to, our relationships. We we put our sense of identity sort of encapsulates all of these things. And so because the things we own are incorporated into our, our sense of identity and our sense of self, there's a couple actually really like tangible, actionable things that come out of this knowledge. First of all, when you don't feel like the person you wish you were, there are specific products that would love to convince you that if you buy them, you will be that person. Okay. And we've all fallen prey to that, that this particular thing will, you know, the person you want to be, the badass woman I want to be wears those boots. You know, and so what happens is that because when you purchase something, you, that thing now becomes a part of yourself, you actually can purchase the idea, the identity you want for a time. You can. And so it turns into a financial strategy for achieving your desired identity. And it can be effective, but it's very expensive. <laughs> and, and the fact is that our, our sense of identity is strong some days and weak other days. There are times when, what do you do when your sense of self is damaged or threatened for some reason? Well, going and buying something that represents that person you wish you were is one way to sort of restore that sense of self. And that is retail therapy in many ways. On the other hand, Think about all the stuff that we hang on to that represents parts of ourselves that we no longer identify with. The psychological baggage that that actually has in our lives. I would love to see a study of people just cleaning out their basements and their attics of things that don't, things that represent who they used to be that they no longer feel they identify with. And I would love to see the effect on someone's psyche of of getting rid of things that are no longer true to who they feel they are. Um, but we hold on to things because we think we need to, because we feel obligated to the person who gifted it to us, because we think it would be useful in the future. And this, it can put weight and baggage on your sense of self because your sense of self also includes all the garbage in the garage. Well, yeah. And it seems like a transient way. It seems like a, a fleeting way to, to buy a sense of self. Right. And then you, you get, you get sort of surrounded by the, the relics of your insecurity or something like when you're, when you're cleaning out the garage and anyway, I, but, I, but, you know, even in that comment, I find myself wanting to moralize about this. And I think probably, um, awareness is the answer and and not further further moralizing it is what it is like we do it we know this about ourselves and so act accordingly yeah and you know i i think that that's a really important point actually understanding the psychology of money for me has been really helpful in liberating me 
from moralistic judgments because human psychology, again, it's not, these are not personal failings. These are the way our minds work. Our minds are brilliant machines that have had to learn over eons how to make really good decisions really quickly without enough information. And so we have learned to take really complex information, turn it into a simple rule of thumb, and then follow that. And that serves us really well in a lot of situations. But if we use the wrong rule of thumb in the wrong context, or if we rely on the rule of thumb to an extreme, we get into problems. And that's where heuristics are actually sometimes adaptive and wonderful things that we want. They can be smart shortcuts that help us make good enough decisions to move on and get on with our lives, or they can lead to biases and bad judgment. They're not always bad. And so, but understanding how psychology works helps me at least to say, these are, this is the way the human mind works. Now I can choose to work with the way my mind works, or I can continue to try to fight against it and try to moralize and say, I shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't be that way. Well, guess what? We are this way. How about we just figure out how to work in, how to make healthy lives in spite of that? Yeah, I love it. So Sarah, you have, you have a chapter on finances and emotions in Loaded where you share research that talks about the relationship between uh, mental pictures of the future and experiences with money. And in that chapter, you say that those with a vague mental picture of money had negative experiences, uh, while those with clear pictures of the future had positive experiences. So is this a chicken or an egg thing? Because, you know, it's like your locus of control you mentioned earlier. Is it, is, it, <laughs> is it that a strong internal locus of control leads you to wealth? Or is it that wealth facilitates being in control of your life? So how do you think about this and and how can we think more vividly about our future self and our financial future? Yeah, I think it is uh, whatever the term is for a chicken and egg scenario. You know, it, it I like to think of it as it's it's a feedback loop, right, where um, one leads to the other leads to the first leads leads back. So and my research has continued on in this vein past where it was when I wrote Loaded. I've done some um some work in this space since then. And this is one of the biggest things that I have become convinced of is that if there is one change you can make to give yourself a better chance of being good with money, start to think farther into the future. And it seems like a no-brainer, right? When you think about it, the far you're not going to plan for a future that you can't see. Mm. And and yet I think this is something that we don't pay nearly enough attention to because the people who, let me just say this, I've been, I've done a number of studies where I've asked people about their financial situation. And then I've asked them about their mental time horizon, how far into the future they tend to think and plan when they think about their money. And then I asked them when they think about the future, how clear and detailed is that mental picture? And then I asked them a series of questions about their emotional experiences with money. So there's four positive experiences, joy, peace, satisfaction, and pride. So I ask in the last six months, how often have you felt each one of these emotions? And they rank that on a scale from almost never to almost always. So they get a score for each of these positive emotions. And then the four negative ones are anger, helplessness, sadness, and anxiety. 
And how often have they been feeling those over the last six months? And then what I did is created a emotional well-being score, financial well-being score, where I said, okay, let's add up all the frequency of positive emotional experiences and then subtract the frequency of negative emotional experiences. So if you had a score of zero, it would effectively mean that you're having just as many anxious thoughts as peaceful thoughts, and it's a wash on the whole. So a score of zero is a neutral. And so if you, if I, when I talk about this, if I say people were having a mostly positive experience with money, what that means is that they were, they were reporting more positive, more of those four positive emotions than they were the negative ones and vice versa. So what I found was that in every single income group from people making, you know, $25,000 or less up to 150,000 and more. The each income group, if you look at like financial well-being, that emotional experience with money, and you just look at income, you will see a very positive trend that the more money people were earning, the more positive their experiences with the more positive their emotional experiences with money were. But if you break it up by income group, the story gets really interesting. Because then what I found was that. People who had that, I asked people to choose one of two statements, either I create my financial destiny or my financial future is largely out of my control. And so depending on which of those two they chose, they have the, those that believe they have power over their future have an inter what's called an internal locus of control. They believe that the source of control in their life is internal to them. And those that believe that they don't have control over their financial future have an external locus of control. They believe that the economy or God or fate or chance or other people have something external to them has a larger amount of control in their, in their financial lives. So if you look at financial well-being by income group, the, if, you, if you graph it, it's so clear. The people who, in every single income group, the people who believe they control their financial destiny, no matter how much they were earning, in every income group, they were significantly more positive emotionally. In fact, the people in the less than $25,000 uh, group were happier if they had an internal locus of control. They were experiencing more joy, peace, satisfaction, and pride with respect to their money than people making $80,000 who did not feel in control of their future. Mm -hmm. And you didn't see it tipping into net positive until people were in that 100,000 or above group. And so, yes, income matters, but mindset matters too. And that's, that's the point here, that you can actually Im- improve your emotion, your financial well-being by changing a couple of things about your mindset before you even get a raise and make your quality of life better. Um, so that's the locus of control part. The other part is the mental time horizon. And mental time horizon, I found, does correlate to the emotional well-being in very much the same way. Any of each income group, if you look at people who are looking 20, they look ahead 20 years or more. And when they look ahead, they've got a really clear and detailed picture. They were generally experiencing very positive 
uh, emotions with respect to their money, regardless of the income group, they were happier than the people who were short-term thinkers. And so, but the other thing that I found this correlates to is that short-term thinking also strongly correlates to the actual amount of assets that people have acquired. And so if I, when I looked at, you know, when I, when I looked at emotional financial well-being and actual financial solvency and their uh, financial situation. And both of them, the locus of control and the um, mental time horizon, and then two other factors, how you compare yourself to others and, uh, and when you compare yourself to others, do you look up or down the socioeconomic ladder? Like those, those factors, they contributed significantly to emotional well-being and to, um, to actual asset balances. So with with the mental time horizon, in every income group, people who think farther ahead had significantly more saved. People who thought 20 years ahead had 20 times more saved than people who thought less than a year ahead. 20 times. It was almost a one-to-one relationship. And so again, and this, this effect was significant, was strongly significant, even when I controlled for age, education, income, and financial literacy. So, and the effect size was large. So this is not a little statistical finding. The way that you think about money, your mental time horizon can have a serious impact on the amount of money that you have. But yes, it's the chicken and egg thing. Why? Because if you think long-term, you're going to make more long-term oriented decisions, which is going to create more stability in your life, which is going to allow you to think long-term, which is going to help you make money, you know, and and you do that. Whereas if you're more like me, I am naturally a short-term thinker. And I learned the hard way. This is the root of most of my financial problems is that I have a a short-term mindset naturally. And many, many people do. Mm-hmm. It's And again, it's not a personal failing. It's not that you're bad with money. If you're only thinking a month ahead, there is no way you're preparing for retirement. You just, that's that future is so far off. So we, those of us that are short-term thinkers have additional challenges to money management that long-term thinkers don't. And so if you are a short-term thinker, there are things you can do to help yourself to start to train your mind to think longer term, because thinking longer term will lead you to better financial decisions and you'll get on the positive feedback loop where short-term thinking leads to more impulsive decisions, higher debt levels. And uh, and you get on the negative feedback loop that leads you into poverty traps. Mm, that's fascinating and an incredible an incredible effect size. So the the cure for becoming long term, I think, is is uh, relatively self evident. You talked about that sort of considering the future. What about how how to go about cultivating an internal locus of control? You know, you see how fundamental this is. And of course, it is it is reciprocal. It is chicken and egg and egg and chicken. But if someone's listening to this and they go, you know what, I feel a little out of control, like it feels like it's kind of not in my hands. Are there one or two concrete things you would say to that person to to help them kind of claw back some control? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, there are lots of things in this life that are not in your control. You cannot control the global economy. You can't control uh, many, many things. And the more that you focus on those things, the more scared you will be. 
and the more you will uh, have a scarcity mindset and the more um, actually you may even shrink your mental time horizon, it may get you to be more myopic. And so by focusing your attention on the things that you cannot control, you are doing yourself harm. It's not helpful in any way. The only way that focusing on things that are not in your control can be helpful is if you want to set up some strategies to help, uh, you know, defend against some risks. So insurance policies are a great way to take care of some of the things you can't control. Um, things like diversifying assets are a great way to mitigate against some of the larger, you know, if a whole industry fails, you don't want all of your money to be in that one industry. So, or if, if you don't, you definitely don't want all your money to be in one company because then your entire future is, is tied up with that company. So those things like diversification and insuring against risk are really, are really great ways to help mitigate the real and unchangeable fact that some things are not within your control. Once you've done that, there's nothing else productive you can do in that mental space. So focus on the things that you do control. You do control your spending. You do control your savings rate. Yes, some of those things are also, you know, you, there are people will say, well, I can't, I'm going to use a really generic um, example, but I, you know, I can't get a better job. Can you move? Some people can, some people can't. You know, so we all have our own limitations. We all have our own constraints. But within those constraints, we do have control over some things. And so by focusing on the things that you do have control on, it's really just an attention task. Put your attention on the things you do have control on. Start to pay attention to them. And you'll start to see that actually you are pulling some of the levers in your life. And you may be pulling more than you realize. And the other thing I would say is uh, one of the things that you can do that's really simple, just think about one time, one time that you actually felt in control financially. What was one moment that you felt on top of the world financially, you were in control, the world was your oyster. And what did you do to get into that situation where, you know, that just remembering that positive memory can actually reinforce the sense of being someone who does have control. Mm. So it's really about where we put our attention. If you just don't, don't waste your energy and in your resources, scaring yourself by thinking about the things you can't control because they are real, but there are also very real things that you can control. Um, so little by little, you can start to, gain more and more and more control and autonomy, even if you're starting from a place of not having a lot of control, you can start to work on enhancing those decisions. And, and, and the more that you think about and make those decisions consciously and more frequently, the more control you will take. And it, then again, you're in a positive feedback loop rather than a negative one. Yeah, I love that. In in my book, The Laws of Wealth, I was I was very intentional about the ordering of my chapters. And, and the first chapter is called You Control What Matters Most, because I think that that most people spend their time focused on externalities. You know, what will the Fed do? What is the president going to do? Are we going to war? What's the path of the virus? And all of those things are material in the short run, but in the in the long run, it's really all about your savings rate, you know, your, the, your asset allocation, all things that are within your power. 
So well, let's but, talk about one more thing that's in your power that I think is, is even more powerful in terms of internalizing your locus of control. For most of us, unless you're close to retirement, most of us that are that are on the still in our earnings years, our greatest asset is ourself, our resources. We do not all start out with land or financial capital. Some people do, and that's great. I'm happy for them. Most of us only start out with labor as a source of income. And so we have to then take some of that income that we get from labor and move it into land and capital as we age to replace the labor from the, to replace the income from labor. That's a long-term strategy, but think about how your income from labor comes to you. It's not your boss that pays you. It's not your company. Your money, your money doesn't come from the company you work for or from another person. Um, the money you earn is an exchange of value. Let's go back to the very fundamentals. What is money? It is a source. It is, it is a measure of value exchanged. You have, we don't all start with assets, but we all have at least three resources, time, energy, and intelligence. All of us have those three things to some degree. And you put those three things together and you can create an asset that you rent out to an employer. You're either renting your time. If you also rent out some of your intelligence, then you've got skilled labor. If you then invest in your intelligence, invest in your skills, now you've got highly skilled labor. That, that generates more money on the marketplace. And so it really is about saying, what resources do I have to work with and how can I turn them into something valuable in the marketplace? To exchange for money? And how can I increase the value of the asset that is me? And then your intent, your, your focus is entirely on how can I create value in my community so that I can build wealth? And it's not about what is the market going to do? What is the economy going to do? You know what? Whatever happens around me, I will create the best I possibly can from it. That's an internal locus of control. Uh. I love it. I love I love the three the three legs of the stool. You are the engine of your wealth. Maximize that intelligence, kids, because the energy starts to go when you get <laughs> when you get to middle age. I'm I'm living proof. So last question. Here's here's my imposter syndrome. Uh, I'm a guy with a finance podcast, and I hate budgeting. Like I can't. <laughs> you like, are can't, not alone. I can't do it. Like I, I'm a tragic failure. When Don't it do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've set forth what you call the loaded budget in your book um, by the same name. How is it different from typical budgeting and, and sort of what's the psychological upside, if you will? Yeah. All right. Here's the thing. Most of us learn this adage. This is one of the money messages we get. A lot of us get is, and you could probably finish the sentence with me. You have to learn the difference between a want and a need, mm -hmm. right? Well, I want to throw away this saying. I don't think it's psychologically useful to us. And here is why. When we take that view of things, what we are really saying is if you don't need it to survive, it's a want. 
that needs, the only thing that qualifies as a need in that scenario is a survival need, food, shelter, clothing, immediate survival needs, the things on the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Think of Maslow's hierarchy, it starts with food, shelter, your immediate survival needs. Then it goes up to sort of your physiological needs, connection, safety, um, security. Then it moves up to your emotional needs and then your your spiritual and self-actualization needs. But here's the thing. It's not Maslow's hierarchy of wants. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And even though we tend to focus on the bottom ones first, that yes, you care more about survival than you do about friendship generally, um, it's not... They are all needs. In other words, this is a list of things that human beings need in order to feel that they're thriving. And so to say that friendship, social connection, adventure, excitement, opportunity, memories, to say that those things are not needs, yes, you can survive without them. Do you want to? Life is colorless and meaningless without those things. That's why we often spend money on those things, even when we probably should put it toward things on that lower that are lower down on Maslow's hierarchy. So I think we have to really forget this idea that there's a want, there's a list of wants and there's a list of needs. Everything we do with our money, everything we do with our money is an attempt to meet a fundamental human need. And that need is real and valid and you need to meet it or else you will feel unhappy. And so when we approach budgeting from this wants needs perspective, we're saying when you budget the things on the bottom of the hierarchy, if, if money's tight, the things on the bottom get funded, everything else gets unfunded and that austerity will make you happy, but it doesn't, it makes you miserable. Because you're surviving, but you're not thriving. You're make, you're literally making a plan to feel deprived. Why would you do that? That's why we hate it. We hate it and we don't stick to it because you're actually planning to cut yourself off from the human needs that make you feel happy. If you overspend on social connection by going out and buying drinks at the bar, the solution to you for you is not to not have a social life. The solution for you is to get that need met without spending as much money. That is a sustainable solution that you will keep. So maybe you you say, all right, if there is, so here's how I think when it comes to budgeting, we have to approach it. Yes, you still need the column of expenses and the column of income. Yes, you still need that. The numbers have to balance. But as you're trying to balance those numbers, in first of all, instead of first saying, if they don't add up, instead of first saying, well, I need to spend less, try to think, can you earn more? That's something that I think a lot of people don't consider. So look at the earning side of your balance sheet. Can you make more of the assets and resources that you have? Do you have an extra room you can rent out? Do you have stuff you can sell? Are there ways that you could add to your income column before you start trying to cut out of your expenses column? That's number one. Number two, when you do find that you need to shrink on the expenses side of things, if there is a line item that you say, well, I can't afford this. I can't afford the yoga membership. It's just too expensive. Well, first of all, before you cut that off, like here's what happens if you just cut it off your, your expense. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do it now. Now the numbers work, but your life doesn't work because there is some need that you were meeting with that yoga membership that you are now not meeting. Mm. 
And so something is no longer going to work. There is an imbalance there. So before you just cut that off your expenses list, you have to first say, what needs, what deep fundamental human needs am I meeting by going to yoga? Maybe it's exercise, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's social connection, maybe it's just getting out of the house and having you know novelty, maybe it's peace and quiet. I don't know, but you can figure that out. You figure out what deep need or needs you're meeting, and then before you cut that expense, make a new plan to get the meet, the need met. Because if you're not going to need, if you're not going to meet the need with that particular financial strategy, you need another strategy to meet the need. It could be a non-financial strategy. If, for example, you've been going to yoga because really you love the connection, then is there a way that you can invite your favorite people from yoga class to meet with you once a week in a park to, you know, sit and have tea or whatever? Is if if you are going to the coffee shop every day, it's probably not for caffeine. It's probably either for a social need, for uh, for a you know breaking up the monotony of your day, whatever. For some people, they want to go and contribute to a local business. You know, a friend of mine uh, uses this this all the time because she said, you know, she realized that she was going to the coffee shop because she really wanted to contribute to to local businesses. And so what she decided to do was set up a a regular time with friends to meet at the coffee shop. And that way she would order the least expensive thing because she didn't need to spend money because now she's got five people spending money at the local Mm -hmm. business and her contribution can be smaller and it's still a meaningful contribution. So the point here is that when we think about we don't need to think about the difference between wants and needs. We need to think about the difference between needs and strategies for meeting those needs. Needs, all of our needs are the same and they can all be found on Maslow's hierarchy. Those are, those are the human needs. I mean, the, you, there's plenty of variation on them, but those are basically the human needs that we need to feel complete and whole and like we're living our best life. So, but our, those needs stay the same. It's our strategies that we use to meet those needs. That's where there's tons of flexibility. We all need transportation, but a car, uh, a train, a bus, a bike, all different strategies for meeting the need for transportation, and they all have different price points. So now budgeting becomes this creative problem-solving exercise. How am I going to get all my needs met so that I am living my best life right now? And not breaking the budget because your need for long-term security is also a deep and fundamental human need. So that's how I think budgeting can be something that is actually, it's something that it takes longer to do. It's harder to do. It, um, it, it definitely, you have to dig a little deeper, but when you, you will come up with new strategies to meet your needs, you will actually be making a plan to feel completely satisfied rather than a plan to feel deprived. And one more thing about budgeting is that if you are someone who has enough disposable income that you're really not, you don't have to watch every dollar. You can meet your savings goals and your debt is not overwhelming. You you have enough generally then actually you don't need to budget at all. I'm going to give you the simplest way to manage your money. Of every dollar that comes your way, you take your total income and you say total income before tax is everything. Now, 
what percent of that is going toward paying off the past? You're including your, your payments on mortgages because that goes to your debt to income ratio. So what percent is going to pay in your past? What percent are you diverting toward creating future income streams? That's your savings rate. And the rest is consumed in the present. Mm. Now, just think of those three numbers, past, present, and future. You want to keep your past at 30% or lower so that you have a good, healthy debt-to-income ratio. You're not overwhelmed by debt. You have good um, credit and good access to good interest rates when you want to borrow. And your debt won't be overwhelming. So you keep the past at 30%. And then you set your goal for the future depending on how quickly you're trying to get your assets to grow. And so let's say I I personally have a goal to save 20%, at least 20%. So as long as I take my income, I take my debt payments, and I take my savings rate. And as long as I'm in that 30-20 range for past and future, it doesn't matter where I spend the rest. I can spend it at Target or at Starbucks or at Amazon, or I can travel the world. It does not matter. I can spend it with impunity because my ratios are in balance. So if, you, if you're someone who doesn't need to watch every dollar, taking that past, present, and future just makes budgeting go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even a hopeless budgeting derelict like myself could, could stick to your easy three-part plan. And you know, it has the added bonus I think of incorporating the research you talked about earlier that that talks about both sort of taking back control of the controllable and uh, an enhanced focus on the future. And I love I love the sort of budgeting by psychological need because so much of budgeting to me just seems like, you know, white knuckle self-denial, sort of dry drunkenness. And it's just like the minute, you know, the minute anything goes wrong, you, you, you break because there's no bend in your budget. And, you know, really what I'm really, what I'm walking away with is permission to get more Jordans and more baseball cards. So I just want to thank well, you. No, but you know what, that may actually be true. What I did in my own budget, when I, when I did this exercise was I realized, you know, I was putting money toward like going out to eat every month. I had that in my line item and I had money for clothes. The thing is, I really don't care about going out to eat. That's not a big thing for me. For some people, that's a huge quality of life thing. I don't care. I love clothes. And so what I realized was that by cutting my, my going out to eat money and kicking a bunch of that over into my clothing budget, mm. I had this outlandish clothing budget and like no going out to eat budget. And I was super happy with that. Yeah, and the clothes the clothes fit better when you don't go out to eat too. That's a <laughs> added bonus. Added bonus. I wish I wish I didn't like going out to eat so much. Well, Sarah, this has been totally awesome. I am walking away with a ton, a ton to think about. This has been, um, you know, I think a, a deeply introspective conversation. You've given us all the time to think about and chew on and, and act on. Um, if people want to buy your book. If people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, how how can people get a hold of your work and learn more about your thinking? Yeah, so I am finance underscore therapy on Twitter. Um, love that. I um, I my book is called Loaded: Money Psychology and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Values Behind. Sold uh, anywhere that you can find it online, Amazon, your local bookstore, um, anywhere that you like to buy books. Um, or directly through Wiley, the publisher. Um, I also just want to give a plug to a couple other um, great resources. Gerd Gigerenzer uh, is a great uh, 
unsung scientist that um, that really talks a lot about the value of heuristics and smart shortcuts. So if you want to know more about how to simple shortcuts that can make you smart, that's great. And and I think that um, there's there's a lot to be said for um, for it, especially I think for your listeners that maybe are on the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum, and specifically those who have come into money after uh, not growing up with money. Um, I want to offer a resource for them and someone that you should definitely have on your podcast is Jim Grubman. Um, he's the one who inspired me to get into this work years back. Um, but he has done some really amazing work on um, this concept of immigrants to wealth and the psychological factors of coming into money when it's not when you did not grow up in a culture of money. So um, just a little bit of tidbits, other tidbits for, uh, for your listeners. Um, but thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, this has been a blast. And uh, I've made a note just now to reach out to Jim and Gerd Gigerenzer is a, an interesting read. If you're mostly familiar with Thaler and Kahneman's work, they, that's sort of a, a, an interesting alternate viewpoint on heuristics and biases. So Dr. Sarah, thanks so much. This has been wonderful. Appreciate all your, all your wisdom today. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.